everyone. This is Hannah, Sue and Steph's producer. Steph is out of town this week, so we're re-airing a recent episode that we really liked, Middle School Matters with Phyllis Fagel. We'll be back soon with new episodes, but until then, enjoy this one and stay safe out there. Welcome to Your Teen with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. We are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. Our guest today is Phyllis Fagel, the author of Middle School Matters. So if you can imagine, today we're going to talk about middle school. So before we start talking about middle school, we're just going to each tell a little funny story that's happened in our family during the this quarantine time. I have three adult girls home and one college age boy home. And he found the shower to be disgusting <laughs> because of all the hair uh, that was being left in the in the shower. So uh, I woke up one morning to a campaign around my house. They were signs everywhere. It said, the first one said, clean the hair. Like we're in a movement now, clean the hair. And everywhere you went, there was another sign with a quote that had a hashtag on it that said, clean the hair. And this is, you know, this, I mean, the quotes were from the Bible, from Ellie Wiesel, from all sorts of people who address oppression. So, oh my God. so we have a movement in my house, clean, hashtag clean the hair. That is hilarious. <laughs> How did things go following, um, the the very articulate protest that he had. Um. So I, he has a movement of one, and and nobody else cared. <laughs> okay. That, <laughs> poor Jacob. I, I'm in his camp now. I'm not showering there, but I I can appreciate that. It kind of grosses me out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I I understand his position, and I think yes. he's absolutely hysterical in the way he responded to it. But you know, he's still a movement of one. What's funny in your house? Definitely a lot of poking fun at Todd and I, oh. which is funny. Well, that you know what? If you think it's funny, then you are ahead of the game because yesterday yeah. I was talking to somebody and we were saying how we are so lucky to have kids who want to, like, improve us. I mean... <laughs> exactly. Not everybody that has the benefit of, of like, teenagers that want to tell you how they feel like you could improve as a human being. Well, right and like... Totally. And the great thing is like sometimes when you're trying to improve, like maybe you're at 80% and you've got only 20%. I apparently have close to a hundred percent room <laughs> to improve, which is so awesome because then, you know, I definitely can make strides there. I mean, that's easy. So we should probably address middle school because we did record with Phyllis Fagel before we were all quarantined and we're doing the intro right now from our homes. But today we're just going to talk about middle school since that's what Phyllis Fagel is known for. Yes. But the real thing about middle school that I often think about is when I go to an event, a big event, and it's open seating, I have a lot of anxiety mm. about that. And so when I walk into the room, and that happened to me one time after feeling like I'm going to be a grown up and I'm going to be brave and I'm going to go without making plans with anybody. And I walked into the room and there was a seat at a table and someone said to me, I'm saving it for my friend. And I thought, I'm back in middle school. Yes. 
transported immediately. Immediately. Mm -hmm. Not just with the feeling of like, I can't believe she said that, but the the bigger feeling of like, I cannot believe how my body feels right now. Like such big rejection, social rejection as a grown-up who elected to walk into this room. You and I say this all the time, like everything comes back to middle school. Like, can you have a lunchroom in middle school where seats are assigned? Um, Oh, my daughter's school they did. They did, really. Because I yes. I have this feeling like in life, I just want my seat assigned. I don't care who I'm sitting next to if my seat is yes. assigned. I can I can talk to anybody and enjoy it or have something to tell afterwards. But it's like the the anxiety before having that seat is sometimes persuades me not oh my to God. bother. Same. And no, yes, in my daughter's school, in middle school, not in high school, they did not. They then, in high school, you were allowed to choose, et cetera. But middle school, they would, we used to call it like the social engineering, where they would mix the girls up. She's an all-girls school. And so you would get assigned to one table, and then the next month you were assigned to a different table. And I thought it was brilliant. because How did Lane feel about it? I think she liked it. Yeah, I, I, the I, mean, pressure off. <laughs> I, I I really think if you took a poll, I mean, kids want autonomy and they need to, you know, go through some of these social hurdles, but wouldn't that make you like know somebody you were never going to know or even like? Exactly. You, you'll know them and like them a little more because you sat with them. I think you could, I mean, it would be an interesting social experiment, but I do think that you're forced to find the commonality. And, and I feel like I'd have to ask her, but there were also... They always did these um, exercises at the beginning of the year where they would put the girls into different groups and they had different projects. Like one was out at a different campus and the next year it was like this big archaeological dig. And they purposely formed these groups, like I said, these social engineering groups. And um, they had to do these exercises where they then had to tell... It's kind of like we do some of these things now where we're like, okay, talk to Sue for five minutes. Now you're going to introduce Sue, right? That same type of idea where you know you have to tell something about this other classmate, you know, and so you have to ask questions to get to know them so you can then present them or whatever the exercise was. It's brilliant. It really does. I mean, yeah, even at my current age, boy, that would certainly take the pressure off. Who, yeah, I hate that feeling. Okay, I'm going to take it one more step because I remember my friend telling me this. They moved your mother into assisted living and the mother, she didn't like it. And so I said, I was asking like, what's, what's the difficulty with the transition? And she said she wants to eat at a table with these women, and they there's not an extra seat at the table. <laughs> okay, so, so that's not covered. So away. even into our 80s, right? That that's that's what it away. looks like. Okay, great. That's that's awesome news for our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. you know, it it just is a thing, and there's really well, I don't want to say there's no way around it. I hope that maybe. Like Lane's experience is the way around it and that you don't actually have to spend the rest of your life saying, oh my God, I feel so middle school. Exactly. Okay, so up next is our conversation with Phyllis Fagel, the author of Middle School Matters. You wrote the book, Why Middle School Matters. Can you tell us a little bit about why does middle school matter? Historically, we have treated middle school as this 
phase that we just have to get through. We just have to bear with our kid as they go through tremendous changes. And maybe we have to deal with reliving a phase that wasn't that much fun for ourselves, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel and they'll go to high school and they'll go on. And I think when we do that, what happens is that we lose this incredibly important and prime time to impart skills at an age when kids are still impressionable, but they're also sophisticated. They still very much care what we think, even as they're pulling away and identifying more with friends. And we want to lean in as much as we did when they were younger, but just in a very different way. So you see kids in middle school every day, and you've been doing this for a number of years. What are the inevitables that parents don't know about that you could predict that will happen every single year? Oh, that's a great question. The social piece, I think parents do anticipate, but what I don't think they anticipate is how agonizing it can be for them as well. In some ways, it can be more excruciating for the parent than it is for the child to experience it vicariously the second time around. And recognizing that kids are going to have these ups and downs and they're going to come home and they're going to unload on you. And so you're going to think it's catastrophic, but more often than not, they're just unloading that burden on you so they can go in the next day and start all over and deal with these emotions that are all over the place and these friendships that are shifting so fast, even as even faster than they can even process it themselves. And they're trying to figure out who they are at the same time. So it's hard for the kids and it's almost just as hard for the parents, if not harder. I think another misconception parents have is that as the academic load increases or as the expectations increase, that their children will somehow magically rise to the occasion. And that if they don't do the work, it means they're lazy. And what they fail to realize often is that kids at this age really don't have the ability to do any future planning. And it's not laziness. It's a skills issue. They really do need scaffolding and support to to figure out how they learn best and how they can organize their time and how they can do their homework. It's really challenging for parents to figure out how to support their kids and support their emerging autonomy while also teaching them all of these important skills that they need to be successful, not just in middle school, but beyond. We know there are a few things that happen pretty much every every middle schooler and actually, uh, yeah, and actually beyond. So I want to throw you a couple scenarios. And if you could okay. help us, what you think is the best advice for parents to, to help their kid or how the parents should respond. So the first one is the kid gets left out of a party. Okay. So the very first thing I would do is assess your child's mental state. If they're not upset about it, or if they're taking it in stride, the last thing you want to do is interview for pain or ask a number of questions that will suddenly start them wondering if they're good enough or if they're ever going to find their peer group. You don't want to make it worse for them. If they're upset about it and they come home and they're disappointed, you want to validate those feelings. And you can share times that you yourself might have been excluded and how that's painful and that's hard. And then you want to help your child be proactive. So the last thing you want to do is call up the other child's parent and say, can you include my child? This is, that ship has sailed. That, that will We're not talking about what you'd like to do. We're yes, talking. yeah. Yes, you may have all kinds of fantasies about what you would like to do. But the reality is that what we want to be doing, particularly since, as we've said, it's inevitable that they're going to hit these bumps in the road is teach them how to how to weather them and how to be resilient. And so 
I talk a lot with kids about the difference between being proactive, reactive, and passive. So if you're passive, you might just sit around and think, I will never have friends again. No one ever will invite me. And I may as well just accept that I'm going to be a loner for life. If you're reactive, you might do something stupid, like post something rude on social media that you can't take back. (laughs) Or you might write someone off or burn a bridge and overreact. And if you're proactive, you're going to think about what you can do to improve the situation, how you can take back that sense of power. And that powerlessness is really what contributes to so much of the middle school stress that kids experience. So in this situation, you would work with your child. You don't want to spoon feed them the solutions, but work with them on what they could do. And in this situation, it might be that they invite someone over who they know would be happy to have a sleepover so that they're not sitting around, you know, lurking online and trying to figure out what kids are doing, having fun without them, and that they're instead staying busy and and trying to make friends that, that are mutual and where there's reciprocity. The parent follows the advice you just gave. What can we tell parents they might get out of their kid? Is it a, ugh? Is it a high <laughs> roll? And are those all okay? Because I'm, I'm hearing what a, a mom may typically say to this, or, you know, or you're almost hearing what the kid would say. Well, help, help us um, help mom understand what she might get. So I think that's the magic of this phase. You don't ever know what you're going to get. You could get silence. You could get anger. You could get you don't understand. You could get I'm not doing any of that, refusal to engage. Whatever it is, you just want to stay non-reactive yourself and know that they're listening. Because even if they're not externally seeming to really follow you or buy into what you're saying, they are still taking in and absorbing your ideas and it is helpful to them. And and one of the worst things about being excluded is feeling alone in your pain. And even having a parent say, I hear you and I know what that feels like and I, I'm happy to listen to you and, and let's talk about what we can do to make you feel better, to make you move, help you move forward. That's very powerful. I had a a child once tell me that she had gone to a dance and she came home from the dance and she was really upset because she had been with old friends who she felt like she was outgrowing. And it wasn't a major issue, but these kids had been saying mean things about someone else at the dance and she had been in that other girl's shoes and she felt uncomfortable and then she felt uncomfortable that she hadn't stuck up for this other girl. And she came home and for a long time, she just avoided her parents. Even though they knew something was wrong, she didn't want to talk about it. And at some point, a few hours later, she brought it up and she started to cry. And when she was recounting the story to me, she told me that her mother said, you know, I had a similar experience when I was about your age. And her response, and this is not necessarily what she said to her mother at the time, but with some reflection, and she was a couple of years removed at this point, she said to me, I thought to myself, if my mom, who's smart and awesome, could have friend drama and be okay, then I also will be okay. Oh, that's lovely. Okay, scenario number two. I don't know if your advice is going to be any different, but I'm th- throw it to you anyway. So okay. the kid doesn't get what they want or maybe what the parent wanted, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. the lead in the play Varsity, they end up on JV, you know, captain of a team. What's your advice there? What's the best way for the parent to handle that? Again, validating that it hurts and that it, it you might need some time to process it and to absorb it even before you want to talk about it. it in this situation, it's also helpful to share times that you might have had a similar setback or someone you know has had a similar setback and then to talk to them about 
what they would like to do next, I think it's important to remind kids that just because they didn't get something once, it doesn't mean they can never try for it again, or it doesn't mean they can't approximate the experience in a different way. So perhaps they didn't make the varsity team or the A team in the middle school, but maybe they could play rec baseball. And this is when we as parents want to be really underscoring that the goal is to figure out where their strengths and their interests align and helping them find situations and opportunities to explore their interests however they can. And it may not be on the varsity team. It may be through a different avenue and that's okay too. That's great. Thank you. So I want to talk about the lunchroom, which I think I still live with as an adult. Like give me a seat wherever I go and I am so happy, but send me somewhere without a seat and I am panicked. And these kids live with a lunchroom of decision-making and rejection every day. Is that an important part of their growing up? Or are we just putting them in a situation of hell that we don't have to? A combination. You know, it's funny. We had a substitute nurse in our school who was here for a few months while someone was out on family leave. And I was talking to her the other day in the lunchroom, and we were sitting with a student who was talking about how hard it is to navigate social scenarios. And this nurse, the substitute nurse, looked at the child and said, you want to know something? I feel nervous every time I walk into this cafeteria because I'm new here and no one has invited me to sit with them. I'm just expected to figure it out and sit down. And I know in my heart that no one is going to turn me away, but it's even hard for me as an adult. And I think approaching all of these situations with middle schoolers from that stance from recognizing that it's hard for anybody to enter a new social situation. It feels risky. And then compounding it with this phase where you're already insecure and already unsure where you fit in and where you feel a sense of belonging. That's kind of the perfect recipe for stress and feeling unsettled. So when it comes to the, but at the same time, these are kids who want to have a sense of agency and they want to have the ability to make decisions. They don't want to be micromanaged every minute of the day. It's important that they learn how to figure out where to sit and that they learn how to advocate for themselves and, and, and have to navigate some of these difficult situations. I, I like to strike a balance. So schools can do mix-it-up days where maybe they have the kids sit by birthdays or sit with kids of different ages and then maybe give them an extra assist where they have conversation starter cards on the table. I also think it's particularly helpful with new middle schoolers if schools assign seating for that first week or so. On the parents' part, if that's a source of stress, they might be able to help their child brainstorm a kid that they know who's going to be going to the middle school with them who they could agree to meet outside that lunchroom on the first day so they know what to expect. And that would be an example, by the way, of being proactive. You're anxious about it. What can you do? Well, you could call somebody who has a similar schedule who you know will have the same lunch period and make an arrangement to sit with them. But it's hard. There's no question. I love that. And that's actually a great segue to our next question, which you've spoken about teaching kids how to develop healthy relationships. How do we do that? We start with friendships. And I think it's important to understand that kids don't know the difference between healthy and unhealthy relationships. They're often prone to giving and giving to the point of depletion because they want to be good people and they want to support their friends. And that might not necessarily translate into actually helping the friend because they might be in over their head. Their, ki- their friend might be struggling with something that not only 
would an adult need to handle, but perhaps a trained professional would need to handle, particularly if it's a mental health issue. And reminding kids that friendship is a two-way street and that there should be reciprocity, that if you feel uncomfortable with someone, if you feel like you can't be yourself, if you feel like they're always asking you to do things for them, but they're not willing to return the favor, pointing that out, pointing out when you see that they're really relaxed with a friend, saying, make, using comments like, I've noticed, you know, I've noticed you're not yourself when you're hanging out with that person, or I'm wondering if this is a friendship that's working for you. It seems like you have a really hard time disengaging, even when you're clear that you need to do something else. And by modeling what healthy friendship should be, and by talking about it and asking those questions, that will translate naturally into what they should be looking for in romantic relationship. You know, just as in a romantic relationship, a friend should not be pressuring you to do something that you don't want to do. That always it's so hard for me to envision being able to walk a kid through like a, a good friendship because it's two sides to that story. Mm-hmm. So my kid can be do, doing everything in a way that I would say is appropriate and appealing, but there still might not be, I want to be your friend in return. Yes. Yes. And only 50% of kids who've nominated somebody as their best friend in research, have that nomination reciprocated. So we're talking about an age where where kids' friendships are fragile. They might be intense, but they're fragile and they're often not mutual. That experience is not unusual. I also remind kids that the best friendships are not necessarily lower in conflict because you're only going to go to the mat with somebody who you care about and you want to resolve the conflict. It's worth it to you to work through it, to have that conflict. So Sometimes kids think, well, we fight all the time. We shouldn't be friends. And that's not necessarily true. I love that you just said that because I think we look at a good relationship as one that is not a lot of conflict. But relationships are difficult and they can be challenging. And so telling our kids that, like, I I love that you just said that. Thank you. Yeah, no, sure. And just helping them understand that while it's painful that somebody doesn't reciprocate the friendship. It's still a learning experience. And only 1% of friendships make it from seventh grade to 12th grade. Oh, and, wow. Which one? is a shocking... Stit- 1%? 1%. And actually, only 75% of friendships at the beginning of middle school make it even from fall to spring. Oh, my God. Yeah. So it's a time of tremendous shift. And I think normalizing that for kids is helpful, helping them understand it's not that they're a freak or there's something wrong with them. This is what's happening. And the reason it's happening is because this is exactly when kids are learning how to be a friend, how to pick a friend, which is why we as parents, as excruciating as it is to watch our kids choose a poor a friend that's not a good friend to them or a fair weather friend, it's probably going to work itself out anyway. And if we interfere, not only will our child rebel and try to prove to us why they are, in fact, a good choice, we also are depriving them of the opportunity to go through the motions of learning how to, cho- how to find a good friend and be a good friend. What about calling your own kid out? If you notice your kid, you don't like the way your kid talks to one of their friends. I think it's incredibly important to point out, not only when we overhear a mean comment, and I actually wouldn't even hesitate to do it if there was a carload of kids and you're pointing it out because it's a conversation between multiple kids. We, If we don't say it, they're not going to learn it. We need to be pretty concrete. We also need to be pointing out mean comments when we see them on social media or calling them out. If we see them, we should be spot checking in middle school what they're posting because they 
don't necessarily know how their words will land. They're not necessarily intending to wound. Most middle schoolers, most of the time, really intend to be kind and want to be, you know, good people. And when when their efforts fall flat, they may not even know it unless we point it out to them. I'm going to take a leap here because I've been wondering about this whole discussion that we're hearing now about how kids are more anxious than they've ever been. And therapists, 30-year therapists say they've never seen anything like it today. Is our focus on making middle school more palatable for our kids, easier to navigate for our kids? Is that taking away some of the armor that they had in the past when they went to high school and through life? Like the idea of grit, are we losing some of that in what we're trying to accomplish in middle school? The way most middle schools are set up, we actually are heightening kids' anxiety. We have ratcheted up the pressure. We have increased testing. We have taken away a lot of play and recess and that unstructured social time that's so important to resilience. And so if anything, I think we're going in the wrong direction. Fortunately, there's a movement afoot to revisit some of the structures and some of the ways we shift kids. This is an age where they really need close relationships with adults who know them and they need some consistency with their peer group, but it happens to be exactly when we pull them out of the homeroom structure and elementary school and send them to a new building where maybe they don't know the kids in their classes and they certainly don't know the adults. There's research showing that simply telling kids social stories about kids who went through the same transition one year earlier and initially felt like they didn't fit in and initially felt like adults didn't care about them but that they then felt more adjusted and they realized they did find their place. The kids who hear those social stories about how it starts difficult, but then it smooths out, they do much better. So I do think we want to be normalizing that it's a hard transition. And then we need to recognize that kids in middle school really have no coping skills. They don't come in naturally, innately understanding what they need to do to make themselves feel better. They don't even know really what a feeling is. They don't know that they're tied to thoughts or behaviors. They don't know that they don't last forever or at the same intensity. They don't know that if they're jealous, it doesn't mean they're a bad person, that it's something that they're experiencing. So we need to be normalizing feelings and we need to be very proactively teaching them how they can help themselves feel better in these scenarios. Parents can model that for them. I will even have students write them down on popsicle sticks and keep them in a jar or write them down on index cards and keep them in their binder to remind themselves of the things that work for them in different scenarios. So if anything in the past, I think we haven't done as much to arm kids with coping strategies. And if anything, we've taken away some of the structures that have been protective in the past. I want to respond to my question and your answer because I think that it's we're all struggling to figure out why there's so much anxiety today. And there's one line of thought that says we're, our kids aren't resilient enough. But then I've heard other people say our kids have the resilience. It's That's not the problem. We are loading them with situations that create anxiety. So it sounds to me like you're saying the second part, that we are creating an environment that breeds anxiety. Yes. And I think we also have to keep in mind that we're living in a more anxious time. I work with parents too in the school setting and in private practice, and there's just more atmospheric anxiety all around. 
And I also try to make sure kids understand that not all anxiety is, or not all stress is bad, that sometimes it's a signal that something needs to change or that we need to lighten our load or that we're in a situation that we should remove ourselves from or that we have procrastinated long enough and it's time to get started. I don't want us to teach kids to be scared of all stress. That doesn't build the resilience either. But I think it's a a combination of the developmental phase and kids needing these skills anyway and needing us to teach them very proactively. I don't think that social emotional learning in middle school is something that should be optional. I think that it's something that all middle schoolers need. And then we need to also re-examine the structures and the expectations that we are setting, whether it's heightening that academic pressure and giving kids this impression that if they get a C on a math test in seventh grade, they're not going to go to the right college. And I do think that kids now think a B is failing much of the time. And we as parents have to make sure that we're sending a consistent message that we care about their learning, that we care about the process. There is no better time than middle school to double down on processes as opposed to outcome because the stakes are so low in that it's not going to impact their long-term success. But the stakes are high because if we don't teach them resiliency and if we don't teach them these skills in middle school, it will be far harder to impart them later on. I love what you just said, and I want to hear more. You just said about doubling down on processes. Tell us what that means, like what that really means to a parent. What, what can a parent do? A few things. And I think one of the common pitfalls is a parent will say to their child, I just want you to work your hardest. That's all I care about. It's not about the grade. And then the child gets a C plus on a math quiz and they come home and they're feeling dejected and they share that they got that grade on the math quiz. And the parent says, you know, that's fine. That's okay. As long as you worked your hardest, only they wait a full minute to respond or their body language isn't consistent with what they're saying. And kids this age are really looking for any inconsistency. It could be that the parent was simply doing something else and was distracted and they didn't even mean to telegraph any disappointment. But I think we have to be very, very careful that we're sending a consistent message with everything from what we say to how quickly we respond. And then what it also means is asking targeted questions about their projects along the way, as opposed to waiting until we get that final grade. And this would be true for for sports or extracurricular activities as well. So let's say they're doing a group project to ask questions like, what was the most challenging part about working with your friends? Or what did you learn about yourself from this project? If you were doing it over, what who do you think would be the perfect partner for you to match your strengths and weaknesses. So that would those would be very process-oriented questions with a group project. If they are freaking out about speaking up in public or maybe giving a speech to run for a class officer and they do it and they don't get elected, if you focus on the fact that they didn't get elected, you lose this whole opportunity to talk about how proud you are that they took a risk, how impressed you are that they were willing to get up in front of all of their friends. You can ask them what resources did they lean on to work up the courage or why do they think they felt compelled to run? What is What difference did they hope to make in their community? So those would be process questions as well. 
So we're teaching our kids to be good listeners and follow the rules and um, live in a world where they go to school every day and they have to respect the teacher. But we also live in a world where we are dealing with this Me Too movement and abuse of power. So how do we teach our kids that sometimes it's important to disobey an adult or a relative or maybe even a parent? I think that we want to be pointing out examples that we see in the news or in the media and letting them see us speak out as well. So if we see an injustice and we do nothing and stay mute, then we are telegraphing to our kids that they should do the same. Whereas if we're modeling that behavior for them and also giving them positive feedback when they do it themselves, then we're sending a very different message. So if your child comes home and says, you know, Billy was really mean to Max, he told him that he's horrible at basketball and Max was really upset and I thought Billy was being really rude and you could then follow up and say, so what did you do in that instance? And if your child says, well, I did nothing because I didn't want Billy to get mad at me or to take it out on me, you can say, well, I understand why that would be risky and I can understand why you feel that way. So let's talk about, you know, what what could you do that would feel comfortable? How could we build that muscle to speak up and do the right thing? And it might be that they start by just going up to Max later and saying, you know, I heard what Billy said to you and I just want you to know that I didn't think it was very nice and I think you're an awesome basketball player or I think you're really good at something else, whatever feels authentic to say. But helping, sort of validating that it's hard to speak up, it's hard for adults to speak up and helping them build that muscle in the same way that you have to lift weights to build muscle. Taking risks, especially social risks in middle school is not something that kids can do overnight. That's great. And before we go to our last question, I have to say everything, as you're talking, I'm just sitting here thinking about at the at the root of everything you're saying is really finding a deeply authentic connection with your kid. I think starting with curiosity is always the safest way to approach a middle schooler. They won't be as likely to feel judged and middle schoolers misinterpret feedback uh, about 40% of the time. So we want to be mindful of that. And I think that if we keep it real, you know, you're not going to like everybody. You're not going to be friends with everybody. Everybody isn't going to like you. And yes, that hurts. It's hard to stick up for people and do the right thing. So let's talk about what you can do to be able to do that. I think the more that we acknowledge the real, the very real challenges they're facing and help them target them in a way that's realistic as opposed, you know, the real versus the ideal, the more likely they are to engage with us. Yeah, I love that. All right. So our last question that we ask all of our guests, what is the biggest parenting myth? I think with middle schoolers, the biggest parenting myth is that because they stop talking as much, that they don't want you to be involved. They really very much at this age want you to be involved. They're looking for your approval. They're looking for your advice. They're looking for your mentoring and your coaching, but they want to feel like you see them and treat them as the expert in their life, that you value them for who they are, that you don't need them to be anything other than who they are authentically, and that you respect them and that you love them and that you even want their advice at times. And so going back to starting from a place of curiosity, I think the best thing that parents can do is to be a little patient, to not expect their middle schooler to engage with them the same way they did when they were nine, but not draw conclusions from that, that 
lead to them taking that giant step back that can be so detrimental and such a missed opportunity when you're parenting a middle schooler. Phyllis Fagel, you know middle school kids, and we want to know middle school kids, so we're so grateful that you shared that with us. Thank you for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for joining us for Your Teen with Sue and Steph. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. Also, if you want to receive our newsletter, head on over to yourteenmag.com. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. If you like today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review or send the episode to a friend. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.